as she's recovering now from uh, the sickness that she's facing as well. Lord, we pray that you open our eyes now as we turn once again to these wonderful promises. We know this is done as you send your spirit, just as you promised. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 43, verses 14 and following. Just to get our context, where we looked last time, at the start of chapter 43, God really uh, talked about them being his witness. Talked about the wit- We talked about the witness protection program he gives them and how they're to serve. And then uh, we, we see that getting into the middle of the chapter here, verse 14, God's going to describe how his servant is unfaithful. And yet he's faithful and will do something amazing for them. So opening thought I had here was sometimes a new thing comes along which makes us completely forget the things that came before. Uh, Just consider how many people today remember the emergence of VHS tapes, CDs, and DVDs. We lived through that, right? But... It's kind of a secondhand thought. No one would, you know, take their VCR. Not many people today would take a VCR and find a cassette tape and think about rewinding their tape. Uh, that was decades ago. Now it seems, or CDs and DVDs. Even now, uh, the generation—if you're younger than 20—they don't really know much about CDs or DVDs. And to them, that's a foreign idea for many of them. <laughs> Yeah, are they really going to give those? At one point, that was great. You know, you can you can hit forward, and it would skip forward a track. Amazing. And now this next generation, they don't even give that a thought because they got you know the artwork. They can scan. They can change the speed. They can stream anything they want. God promises He's going to do something even greater than the greatest rescue His people have had. So when He says, "I'm, I'm going to do a new thing." He's basically saying, you're not even going to remember the good things I've done before because the new things are going to far supersede uh, what was done. Let's read verses 14 through 17 of chapter 43. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like like a wick, So setting the stage, let's pause there. Of what great events in Israel's past does God remind the people here? Exodus. Yeah, clearly the Exodus, right? The chariots and the horses of Pharaoh were drowned in the sea. Um, That's kind of a, a part of the rescue that they really probably delighted in. Not only were they freed from Egypt, but it was clear to them that their enemies were dead. First of all, they had the the death of the firstborn, uh, that Pharaoh's house and all the people of Egypt are saying, get out of here. And then, to add insult to injury, the entire army that tried to bring them back is now gone. So, yeah, the the full rescue 
And that's what God does. When he rescues, he provides complete rescue. Okay, so that's something they should never forget. But something's going to dwarf that achievement. Any questions on these verses before we move on? A lot of good titles there for God, right? So he says, For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians. And I was going to talk about a new thing, verse uh, 18, 18 to 21. Forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. You must might think he was doing that as he elaborated you know, on, on those previous verses, just how he described with detail what happened as he rescued them from Egypt. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me and the jackals and owls because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. So what does the Lord say will be completely dwarfing his achievement from the past? What's going to be even better? Water in the wilderness. wilderness. And actually, if we think about the Exodus account, wasn't that just about the next miracle that they got? God gave them water to drink in the wilderness. You had the manna and you had water from the rock and the the bitter water made sweet. But here he calls it a new thing. How is this greater? Doesn't this kind of point toward our greatest promise of our salvation? Yeah, this has to be tied in with our salvation because he says, you're going to forget the old salvation. This is going to be something greater than your rescue. Yeah, they were... Symbolizing baptism, they were saved by water when it drowned Pharaoh's army. Yeah. So God already did. Former thing, do not dwell in the past. Your sins have been forgiven. Right. So this has to tie in with forgiveness of sins eventually. How do we see that here, though? There's not much to indicate that. Look how it's described: providing water in the desert. So we know he already literally did this, but now he's going to be providing with the water. Of life. Maybe if you compare to, let's look at further along in Isaiah, Isaiah 55. Let's just briefly jump forward here. Because this is a motif that will come up again and again in Isaiah this idea of water in the desert and drink for the thirsty. Let's just briefly peek ahead to 55 to see where this is going to lead. Here it's the first time where he, he really expounds on how great this is water in the wilderness. Um, we already had the picture of the wilderness starting with chapter 40, right? A voice of one calling in the wilderness. So that's the, the setting. Someone want to read there Isaiah 55? Maybe just the first verse would be enough. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. So it's water without cost, freely given. Scan through this chapter. What is this water that he's describing? We'll get to verse verse 2. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen and you may live. So how do you drink this water and this eat this food? It's water and food, really. Right. Listen, hearing, listening. Yeah. Listening, hearing. And that, that's what you see. Jump ahead to also, if you turn back now to where we were reading, jump ahead to 44. He says, listen, my servant Jacob, 44 verse 3, I will pour water on thirsty land. 44 verse 3, I will pour out my spirit. So... Jesus, also in John 7, says, Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and drink. And then John explains, by this he meant the Spirit, which they were to receive. Yeah, in, in these verses that we're looking at now, back in 43, 18 to 21, it's the introduction to this motif of God providing water in the wilderness. And it's something amazing, because it's a spiritual picture. It's not just merely you know, some monsoon rains. <clears throat> Some of the pictures we have here in these verses, I'm just focusing on 18 to 21. Um, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up, streams in the wasteland. It talks about jackals there. The jackals honor me. Uh, every other occurrence that uses the imagery of jackals in Isaiah and also Jeremiah uses it to indicate hostility, so a place that's abandoned. So he's basically saying the places where there is abandonment, there's going to be life and there's going to be honor for me when he says the jackals honor me. Owls, uh, that was used twice before by Isaiah, coupled with jackals. And once again, it refers to desolate places. So Isaiah 13, verse 21, and 33, verse 13, he talks about the owls there. So he's basically saying where it's desolate and abandoned, people don't live there anymore. You'll find jackals and owls. There, there will be life again. He says, to give, to drink to my people, my chosen. That's in verse 20. So this water, it's not just for the jackals and the owls. Jackals and owls are really what I'm getting is a poetic picture that this is going to be where there is no life, but now my people will have water, where you'd never expect to find water as I pour it out to them. So... His next rescue, he's saying, is going to surpass the first. It's not even worth comparing. So how is it greater than the exodus from Egypt? Firstly, it's centered on sinful people who receive God's grace, thirsting for mercy. Um, jump ahead to verse 26. Isaiah 43, 26. I'm sorry, verse 25 and 26. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and remembers the sin no more. Review the past for me. Let's argue the matter together. State your case for your innocence. Your father sinned. So this is, this is a, an outpouring on sinners and grace for sinners. An outpouring, as we read in 44, verses 3 and 4, he pours out his spirit so look at 44, verse 3. I'll pour water on thirsty land, streams on the dragon. I'll pour out my spirit on my offspring. And as he pours it out, they will belong to him as they receive it. All right, so any questions, comments on that section, 18 to 21? 
So God's promising life where you don't expect life. Pouring out waters means new spiritual life through his spirit. Yeah. So um, for 44.3, my Bible links that to Acts um, and the story of Pentecost. Yeah. You do have that. Um, this was what written, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Yeah. And that began that pouring out on Pentecost. Same thing when Jesus says, come to me and drink. And it says, by, the, by this he meant the spirit, which they were later to receive, really pointing to Pentecost. Um, so you could say what happened at Pentecost is the first fulfillment of this. And it's really the opening up, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles. All right, so God has just made a great promise, right? He said, I'm going to do something so great, it's going to make you forget the former things. Now let's analyze the state of Israel, the people who he formed for his praise, as we read in verse 21. That's why Israel exists, to praise God. Verse 22 to 24. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. Someone have a different translation they can read there for verse 22? Mine says you have become weary of me. Okay. You have become weary of me, Israel. Yeah. And verse uh, 22a in my NIV 2011 has a footnote saying... Or you could read, surely you have grown weary of me. So either way you take it, you have not wearied yourselves for me, or you have grown weary of me. Both seem like a pretty bleak response to God's love, doesn't it? Why should we tire ourselves in serving God? Or we're tired of serving God, either way you phrase that. First, yeah, go ahead. I have a really good note in my Bible. Can I read Yeah, that? let's hear it. It says, the people were weary of God, so they did not offer sacrifice. But it was not God's fault. The purpose of the sacrificial laws was not to weary them, but to free them from their sins. Since the people refused to see this, God was instead weary by the sins of his people. Right, yeah, they're getting to verse 24, which we didn't read yet. Instead, they weary God with their sins. We're not going to bring you sacrifice and praise God. We're going to bring you our sins. All the wonderful things you do for us, but Jesus, we don't do anything. Let's, let's read it all together now, because that, that brought us to where we're headed. So verses uh, 23 and 24. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices, I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. So yeah, just a very ironic, sad picture that God's saying, I didn't give you anything weary to, to offer sacrifice, and yet... You weary of me and what you can't serve me, so you bring me your sins. Uh, I forget what verse in Deuteronomy, what just well, a number of times in, in way back, he said, Keep my decrees and I will bless you, basically. Things will go well with you. Right. When you start going against what I've commanded, then. 
God's commands aren't burdensome. No. And he intends them to be a blessing. And as we keep them, especially for Israel, he promised blessing. We have some blessings tied in for us as well, both the general proverbs that are given. And Paul says, you know, that it may go well with you. Ties that in with the fourth commandment. Yep. So God God never intended for us to be wearied. Obviously, as sinners, we're, we're under guilt and we should be under fear for we have broken these commands that's where Israel stood, and think about us. How, how might we sometimes act like bringing an offering for the Lord is a burden instead of a joy? How might we do that? Well, maybe by withholding some of our offering because we've got some big expenses coming up, so we don't put trust in God to take care of our problems. Sure. I can deal with it myself. I can handle it my way. <laughs> so instead of giving us, instead of bringing our God uh, here it's described you know, the fat of your sacrifices or fragrant calmus. They went to bring God their first fruits and bring him gifts. We might, in our own way, say, well, I know God has given me all these things and I could praise him by giving back to the, the Lord and praising and honoring him, but I'm going to hold back. Yeah, it's, it's just, he's asking too much right now. I, I got other things to concern myself with. How else might we act like bringing the Lord and offering is a burden? Not just with their offering, but also our time. Right. Paul says, offer yourselves as a spiritual sacrifice. We might say, well, I don't have time for that. And maybe God's called on you to serve someone or to serve the gospel in some way as you encourage others or build up in some way using your gifts. I don't have time to use that gift you've given me, God, whether it's serving with my time serving with my offering, serving with my abilities. Yep. What did the people in Isaiah's time bring God instead of offerings? Yeah, we're weary of you. And how might we often present God the same thing? We act the very same way. You know, we talk about these Israelites and how horrible they are, but if you sit and think about it a little bit, uh, this world today, yeah, it's kind of depressing. It goes hand in hand, doesn't it? When we no longer offer God sacrifices of thanks, we no longer offer ourselves, uh, as he says here, people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. When we stop doing that, we probably also increase the thing we shouldn't offer God, our offenses, our complaints, uh, turning against him. Well, bringing, especially with idolatry. Sure. You know, just not only just not recognizing God, but giving credit to somewhere else, to a false God. Right. What then gets our time, well, our God attention? America great again. We're gonna... Yeah. Who, who are we serving? Who are we honoring? Who are we praising in place of God? Or what, rather, as well? All those false idols, they receive our, our offerings. And sometimes even those false idols can become... Self-worship, forms of entertainment that are ungodly. And so we offer God those offenses only. Really, we're offering them to a false God, and that's all God is left with before us. That's a pretty bleak picture when you put this in context. God's saying, for your sake, I'm going to do this, Israel. I'm going to, I'm going to cause water in the wilderness, life where there is no life. It's going to be so great, you're not even going to remember the rescue from Egypt. And yet, what have you done for me? You haven't offered sacrifice as you ought. You've not brought me these things, but you've brought me your sin. 
right? Verse 25 to 28, closing the chapter, this is what it really centers on and what we need. Verse 25 to 28, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. So what are some of the pictures of forgiveness in this section? Forgiveness. Sure. Forgiveness. How is forgiveness described here? There's some neat picture languages, I think, to describe forgiveness. He won't remember our sins. Yeah. That's the best part. He won't remember them. Now, now, does God ever forget, really? He can't forget. He knows all things. He remembers all things. Uh, so, But that picture of not remembering means when he sees you, he's not going to see you as a, a sinner that has a, an account to to. Ch- charge against you. He's going to see you as one who has a clean slate. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have an agenda against you. Yeah, another picture, it's not found here, but another picture of forgiveness is cleansed, the atoning, the, the covering, the washing of our sins away. So here it's, yeah, that, I think that should be comforting. When God sees you, it's not like you walk around bearing all this guilt. He doesn't remember your sins. So the way God now views you, and notice he doesn't say for your own sake, he says for my own sake. Because of who I am, God says, I don't see you in light of your sins anymore. I don't remember them. That's a comforting picture. We are, we are so prone to remember, you know, when someone sins against us, like we, we kind of color them forever in that picture. Like, I remember what you did now. And we kind of like paint them as a, our enemy or paint them as someone that we want to get revenge on. Not so God when he sees us, even though we've, we've wearied him with our offenses. Maybe I'm a little confused here. Well, I've read where basically what I get out of it is he that believes that Jesus covered their sins with his blood, washed us clean, God will not remember those sins anymore for for Jesus' sake. Right? Right. Okay. But for the unbeliever, then won't they be laid out for him? Yeah. Probably a, a, because we don't you know, relate with memory cues quite so much. We relate more with um, what's written down. So the record of our offenses, basically the proof of what God remembers. And I think that's the other picture here, isn't it? He who blots out your transgression. So how can God remember it if he's erased it off of his daily to-do list? It's kind of a, the way that terms memory in a way we can understand. Now you're getting to the unbeliever. Their name is not written in the book of life, and they have the record of sin still charted against them. So when judgment day comes, God will say, oh, oh, not only do I remember, but it's written down every account that you will be held accountable for. So those are the, the two pictures here. And I think when you put them together, then we can... Get the full scope of it, right? He blots out the record and he doesn't remember. 
in 28 says, I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Yeah. Now, is that the future Jacob and Israel that that killed, put Jesus on the cross and then didn't believe he rose again? This is the, the punishment that the people will receive. Really, we might call it more chastisement because of their rebellion and their, as we just read, despite all he's done for them, they don't worship him. They only bring him their sin. And that's why Isaiah has to prophesy the Babylonians will come. They will destroy the temple and everything. And there needs to be a restoration. So we're almost, we're almost confused as we look at that because it's like, on the one hand, God, you said you don't remember our sins, but you're going to punish. And that, once again, can only be resolved that there's believers who by faith are saved. And then the unbelievers face punishment Believers along with them take that to heart, and they're not punished for their sin. They're only built up, they're chastised, and they remain in faith. How is this fulfilled in Christ? Yeah, God doesn't remember our sin. It's not that he altogether forgets, but rather the Son took those sins, so they're not remembered against us. But the sins... All the accounts, every record of your sin that was written down, placed on the cross. Or it's not that God just blots out the sin. There has to be a destruction on the scroll of life. Uh, that, that blotting out, that, that action was taken at the price of God's son shedding his blood. He did it for his own sake. So because of Christ, our sins are blotted out and God doesn't take action against us when it's already been taken. When you consider the times when you have continually struggled with sin, what comfort do these pictures give you? You will remember our sins no yeah, how, how can God forget that? Because, you know, I sinned 70 times or 70 times 7. Or this is a sin I've struggled with lifelong. How can he forget and no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've failed to honor God, no matter how great that record of sin against you, it's forgotten, blotted out. God doesn't mention anything about the severity of their sin or if they even deserved it, but rather it's for my own sake, I blot it out. Well, that's why you can't just live your whole life and base your whole Christian life on just one or two passages. It takes the entire word. Sure. So where it says over here, he remembers them no more, and if you have that, there's a puzzling thought or something, it's explained somewhere else. Yep. God doesn't have amnesia, but he is full of mercy, and he covers it for us. I have amnesia. I can't can't remember what it was on Sunday. That he's merciful, but that he's also just. Yeah, that mercy and justice go together. See, I have this little slot in my brain where I can only hold one sermon. <laughs> and then after Sunday, I hit the reset button and I start studying next text on Monday. And I delve into it. And all week long, that's the only thing that's in that slot. So. Yeah. My, my head isn't like a VCR where I can just rewind it. It's more like a, a bucket where you can only fit so much things and then fill that bucket with the next thing. So I remember my sermons no more. 
It's okay, we don't either. <laughs> yeah. And the whole point is, too, you know, even, even whether I remember it or you remember it or not, it still built us up in faith for that time and for, to sustain us and strengthen us in faith. You know, faith isn't merely intellect, and that, that's a comfort, too. Yeah. And thankfully, when God says he remembers our sins no more, it's not because of the way we forget things, right? We just forget things. But God actually intentionally sets that out of his mind uh, to forget it. Yeah. If God was like, oh, uh, what, what was your sin again? That wouldn't be very comforting. But if God can say to you, this is what's going to happen. I will remember your sins no more. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be that I'll just forget it. That's a comfort. All right, let's review this section. So we're going to review verses 14 to 28. God poetically describes his past deliverance for the people from the hand of Egypt. And as I mentioned, it really emphasizes how complete his rescue was. Can you use poetic imagery and language to describe the new deliverance, which was fulfilled for you and all believers? And maybe you can even try to borrow some of the imagery from this chapter. So God poetically described the rescue from Egypt, talking about the mighty waters, a way through the sea, the army and reinforcements never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He did that, poetically describing the rescue from Egypt. How would you poetically describe this new deliverance, which he's now fulfilled. As the lightning strikes, you're thinking, I'm not a poet. Um, though I was dying of thirst in the desert, as we're kind of hearing now, if I don't know if the recording can hear that, but there's thunder and there's rain falling everywhere, even though the sun is shining. Yeah, as a, if, if you could hear what Helen said there, as I was dying of thirst in the desert, God sent me life-giving water. New life, which we have in Jesus. Yeah, that's what I had is, he's the water of life who quenches our thirst forever. Or um, maybe we could jump to the book of Revelation to borrow some imagery there that, that ties in with this, right? Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. So the curse of sin will be removed as God pours out his blessings and quenches our thirst forever. Um, I like this hymn. I want to share the hymn. This is from a Scottish pastor who was born in 1808, Horatius Bonar. He wrote a hymn about the water of life as he wrote, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now... I live in him. So there you got a poetic imagery of that new deliverance described. All right, every now and then I might do that, just challenge you guys to come up with a a picture that matches it. God says, do not remember the former things. Do not ponder those former things. How could that statement be misapplied today? Does it get misapplied today? You owe somebody money. <laughs> Some people would say the old testament is is old and and that really has nothing to do with it. Could yeah. that be that old 
Right. Because of the, the thunderstorm, and we got, it looks like hail now coming down. I'm just going to repeat that so the rest can hear in, in the recording. Some people do that, yeah. With the Old Testament, they'll say, oh, that's, that's all past history. We don't need to study or look at the Old Testament um, like we're doing now, right? Those prophecies of Isaiah, the books of Exodus, they're not really worth the time because we got the New Testament. But that would be a misapplication of this. When God says, forget the former things, he's not saying they don't matter or they shouldn't meditate on them. Right. So if you would say, forget the former things, Jesus says these former things, they all lead us to see him. Um, these scriptures, the Old Testament, testify about Christ. So actually, we should be remembering the former things but they should always be in frame of the greater rescue. So when we talk about the Exodus, we want to remember that's all well and good, but the real rescue is what God has done now in Christ. Boy, I don't know if you're listening, Joan. We miss you today, but maybe you can hear the storm that you're in right now. <laughs> or anybody that's listening to this recording, if, if you're hearing a lot of white noise, it's pounding rain and hail and thunder right now. Yeah. So, do we have time to review chapter 43 perhaps? Should we do that? Maybe I can move closer to you guys here. I don't know if the microphone will let me do that. Because recording or not, I'm having trouble hearing up there. Okay, chapter 43, let's review the entire chapter. So let's review what things did Israel have that made them a perfect witness of the Lord? So what made Israel a perfect witness of God? Countless promises. Promises. Promise after promise. Fulfillment of, Fulfillment of the promise. They could testify, this is the Lord who delivered us from the hand of Egypt. This is the Lord who gave us the land he promised. This is the Lord who made us as numerous as the stars, just as he promised. Uh, this is the Lord who, you know, shortly after Isaiah's time, we'll see, crushed the Assyrian army that was surrounding Jerusalem, just as he promised. Yeah. Really, they had God's past action in history. They had God's promises. They had divine revelation. But despite all that, what made them awful at being a witness? Scan through the chapter there of chapter 43. Yeah. So who of all these people, these servants, the Lord, had everything? Did they pay attention? They kept forgetting. These people that knew and had all this and were said, you are my witnesses. They didn't really live as a witness. They didn't hold on to what God had done in the past. They actually sinfully forgot the former things because they didn't care for the new things. Well, they fell for Satan's original lie. Did God really say? Yeah. Instead of praising God for how he sustained them through the wilderness, they complained about the food. Right. 
So they had God's deliverance, and yet what do we see right away? They, they weary him with their complaints and turn and murmur and grumble and complain. They went to idol gods. Some witness, right? So how about us? Why are all believers, why do all of us have to claim the same things? How are we perfect witnesses of God? We fall short. We fall short? Um, but how are we perfect witnesses? Well, we can be good witnesses in what we say, how we conduct ourselves, our daily living. We can be. But what does God give us that he also gave? He says, you are my witnesses. Did God say that to us? You will be my witnesses, right? Beginning in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So just as God told the ancient Israelites, you're my witnesses, his church, his New Testament church, they are his witnesses. We are his witnesses. Uh, Peter says you're a chosen people, right? To declare his praises. So we are also, we like Israel, bear the title, God's witness. We are also those who have experienced that forgiveness of God, the one who blots out our sins. We have the action of God. We know he's fulfilled his promise by sending his son. We know the Messiah has came. You know, so many ways we can say we are perfect witnesses. We have the word of the prophets, Peter says, made certain. We do well to pay attention to it. So just as Israel is giving divine, given divine revelation, we were given divine, and we hold divine revelation. All those same things we can say to be God's perfect witness. What, what more could we ask for? Fulfillment, the word. He pours out his spirit on us, just as he did for his people Israel. And yet, why do we also have to claim we're, we're not so great at being a witness? Yeah, have we lived as we ought? When we pray, hallowed be thy name, has our, have our lives reflected that as it ought to? And our zeal for going to the ends of the earth sometimes is squashed as we just struggle to make it beyond our community. We think, oh, to the ends of the earth, and our offerings drop. And we don't bring God the simple things he asks, right? But we weary him with other things. What is one of God's purposes in bringing us his salvation? And for that, I had us reflect again on verse 21 especially. Yeah. Yeah. We are now those made for himself that we might belong to him. You know, it's Luther's explanation. All this he did that we should be his own and serve him in his kingdom and proclaim his praises. Um, next review there. What comfort do we have as God sends us as his witnesses? Just to review that. That's from last week especially. Okay, he plans to help and bless us, yeah. What sort of specific blessings and help do we have promised? Okay, in the end, uh, no one can harm us because we have eternal life. God talks about that, that he's going to gather us and we'll be with him forever. That's a promise. I will forgive your sins. If you look later on in the chapter, these are witnesses who don't deserve it, but they're forgiven witnesses. We are, yeah, witnesses in the world who are forgiven witnesses. 
promises that uh, the Holy Spirit will give us the right words to say. Yeah, when he talks in this chapter about pouring out water in the desert, we see that is fulfilled as he pours out his spirit. Uh, he equips us with his spirit as his witnesses and the words to speak. Some of the things I found too, um, his protection, right? Just as he promised Israel protection, you know, when he passed the fires and the waters, I'll be with you, I'll protect you. Didn't he also promise us uh, that he will send his angels to watch over us? Uh, that even if we might face bad things, God will work all things for his good purpose and for the good of those who love him. He will not leave us or forsake us. It says here, I'll be with you. Don't we have the promise Jesus says, I will be with you always, with his gospel and word and sacrament, with his presence. He will not forsake us. Yeah, and probably the greatest one which we mentioned is his grace is with us. Are there thoughts about comforts that we have as his witnesses? So that was a big theme in this chapter. How about final review of this chapter? Can you find at least three things in this chapter which point us to the grace of God? At least three. I'm sure we can do double that. In the very first verse, he says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Yeah. I have redeemed you. And that's comforting to point it to God's grace because God paid the price, not Israel. Uh, that redemption is he's paid for us. Good. So there's God's grace. He says, you are mine. Yeah, you are mine. Which verse in particular are you looking at? That's um, the end of, well, that's the first, first verse in 43. Okay, 43 verse 1. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. Yeah, that's only by grace that we can have him title himself as our God and we are his people. And we know it's by grace. Look at verse 10, it's a similar thought. Why are we his? Whom I have chosen. It's only by grace he's chosen us. And, you know, Paul talks about, I heard Pat, you said witnesses. Paul says it's only by grace that I can even serve as a witness. So not only are we his, we're equipped and called to serve him in grace, because we don't deserve that position. Grace upon grace. Um, 43 verse 21, that's comforting to me in grace, because the people I formed for myself, even before we were born, God chose us. So that's a comfort. Number 11. Apart from me, there is no Savior. Okay, so God's grace and that he alone could save. There is no other rescue. We needed him and he did just what we needed, the God of grace. Um, I found verse 23, even though 23 mentions sin, he says, you have not brought me offerings, and yet God acts. Even though Israel did not glorify him as they ought, even though we don't, he still acts to save. So that, that's grace. You know, whenever you see sin in, in context of God saying, yet I'm still going to do good, it's only despite our failure to worship as we ought and serve him, he still saves. Finally, the, I think one of the, anyone got more? There's at least one more big picture of grace. We found far more than three already. Okay. One more at all? Yeah. 
I blot out your transgression, and then where's grace? For my own sake. So, not only is he saying, okay, you've, you've, earned, you've earned a clean slate. No, he says, for my own sake, I'm blotting out your sin. That, it's only by grace that we're forgiven. Good. So we see Christ and we see grace throughout this chapter as we're equipped, called to be God's witness. Any closing thoughts as we finish chapter 43? All right, we'll, we'll probably pick it up next time. Chapter 44, it's one thing or another. Either it's 105 degrees out and the air conditioning is blasting the whole time, or it's cool out and it's really noisy with the hail pounding on the roof. Right. As long as God spares our brand new shingles on this roof, then you could just hear it pounding up there. Wow. While we say a closing prayer, I'll, I'll try to shout it in the midst of the storm here as we close our time together. Lord, we thank you for pouring out water on this thirsty land, but also, as your word says here, you poured out your spirit, a new thing, and gave us forgiveness and blotted out our sin. Encourage us this week as we serve and glorify you as your witness. Amen. Christ, we hear